0: Next in number 301, Bivens against uh, six unknown agents. Welcome to Under the Color, a podcast on Bivens claims and federal officer accountability. Hello, we are here today with Athul Acharya, and we are so excited to be talking with him about Bivens claims and accountability for government officials. So Athul, if you could go ahead and get us talking about how you first got involved in this matter and what you do for a living now.
1: Hi, Ava, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I am the uh, executive director of Public Accountability. Uh, we're a nonprofit civil rights law firm. We focus on appeals and we specifically focus on um, these anti-accountability doctrines um, like uh, qualified immunity, um, like the, the shrinking of the Bivens Doctrine, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about what exactly that is, Um, And there are, there, there are quite a few of these Um, qualified immunity sort of became big during the 2020 um, Black Lives Matter protests. You know, suddenly there were TikToks about this abstruse legal doctrine. Um, But there are, uh, there are quite a few of these doctrines and they all sort of operate to keep meritorious civil rights claims. So civil rights claims where a plaintiff says that the government or a government agent has injured me um, and I deserve compensation or an injunction. Um, they operate to, cr- to keep these claims from being heard on the merits. So there's some non-merits reason for courts to kick these claims out of court. Um, and what I try to do with public accountability is claw a little bit of that ability for plaintiffs to have their claims heard on the merits back.
0: Wonderful. So how did you first get interested in holding government officials accountable? And what was your motivation for going to law school?
1: Sure, yeah. I did not think I was going to do this when I went to law school. Um, I was actually, I was a software engineer before I went to law school, and I went to law school um, to fight patent trolls uh, and to fight for net neutrality. That was what I thought I was going to do. I got to law school and I found myself interested in uh, a lot of stuff that wasn't just um, IP and tech law. Um, I graduated. I clerked for a couple of years. I did end up fighting patent trolls for a few years, Um, but, uh, you know, that, and that was, that was great. It was, it was enjoyable to do exactly what I went to law school to do. Um, but after a while, you know, patent litigation is very much the same thing over and over again. Um, and, uh, it got boring. Um, and so I started looking around for something else. Um, and the, the sort of, the one thing that I knew was that I I needed some kind of values based work. Um, you know, if I, if I didn't want to do values based work, I could have stayed a Software engineer, worked fewer hours, made more money, it would have been good. Um, uh, there was a, a law firm in San Francisco, which is where I lived at the time, that was hiring uh, a full-time impact litigation associate. Um, and uh, that sounded pretty cool to me. So I went there, uh, It's called called Hagee, and Borden. Um, and the first year I was there, we didn't do much sort of accountability stuff, but the second year I was there was 2020. Uh, and in May 2020, I moved back home to Portland, Oregon, uh or sorry, in June, June 1st, I moved back home to Portland, Oregon. And um, that was also the first that night or the night afterwards was the first night that police kettled a bunch of protesters and carpet bombed them with tear gas. Um, and, you know, that that continued to happen for a few months after that. Um, and so our firm, you know, basically put up the bat signal and said, uh, if people are getting hurt by the police, please talk to us um i built a case uh in portland um uh involving journalists uh who were getting shot at beaten up threatened with arrest by police um was we brought a, a class action on behalf of journalists against the portland police bureau um we got a temporary injunction that uh was uh converted to a preliminary injunction uh and then uh the trump administration showed up in july uh, and so we added them to the lawsuit um and uh got a preliminary injunction against them as well, uh, and had that preliminary injunction held up on appeal. Uh, So this was sort of my first brush with real impact um, accountability litigation. Um, And I really enjoyed it. Um, And I decided that's what I wanted to do for all of my work. Um, And so uh, after uh, a while, uh, I split off and started Public Accountability.
0: So you were telling us a little bit about a case that you got to work on involving journalists. Would you mind telling us a bit more about the cases you have gotten to work on and are currently working on?
1: So, um, so there was that case protecting journalists um, who uh, were reporting on protests. Um, you know, the cops theory was when we say the protest has to get dispersed, everyone's got to leave. Um, the journalist theory was that's when you start beating up people. So we definitely want to stay and, and, you know, record it for the public. Um and uh we made sure the journalist theory won in court um or at least so far it has um I am currently working on two appeals, one of which I think um you know has the potential to be uh a um be kind of a watershed case you know we'll see how it goes uh it's a it's a it's an appeal in the second circuit which covers New York and Connecticut and vermont um and uh the basic question is you know, can federal prisoners bring Bivens civil rights suits against um, federal prison guards? Uh, and I don't know if you had a, a different structure in mind for, for the podcast, but um, I should probably explain what those words are. Um, yeah. So Bivens is the uh, the Supreme Court case from 1970 something um, that allows you to sue federal, federal agents. So if a local cop beats you up, you sue him under a statute that, that Congress passed called Section 1983. Um, there is no Section 1983 for federal officers. So if an FBI agent beats you up, um, if you just went by the statutes, you'd be out of luck. Um, in the 70s, the Supreme Court kind of realized that this was a weird state of affairs that the federal constitution protects you from state and local cops, but not from federal cops. Um, and so they created the Bivens Doctrine. The Bivens doctrine is basically, if the Constitution gives you a right and a federal agent violates that right, you have the right to sue for damages uh, for the violation of that right. Uh, The Bivens doctrine, like I said, came out in in the 70s. Um, Through the early 80s, it was, um, you know, the Supreme Court expanded it a couple of times. Uh, And then the the personnel on the court changed, um, and the court got more conservative. And ever since then, it's been Contracting it in uh, uh in in certain ways um initially it was it was mostly sort of edge case contractions um things like if a military member gets hurt uh, on the job can he sue uh, the federal government um, for that and the answer to that was no and I think that's probably right um you know if you sign for the military you probably you know you, you should probably expect that you might get hurt um there was uh another case um involving whether you could sue, um, basically there was a pretty, there was there was a big, um, a lot of stuff happened with federal disability benefits in the 80s and, and uh, a lot of people were caught in the middle of it and uh, really harmed by a big gap in benefits. Um, and they sued uh, under Bivens. And what the court said there was that, um, you know, Congress has created a really, comprehensive scheme for you to get retroactive benefits and get all these other things. We don't think Bivens should give you yet another right to sue. And you know, whatever you might think about that decision, I don't love it. Um, It was sort of an edge case. It wasn't sort of the core of Bivens. The core of Bivens remained alive and well. Um, Federal officers violate your constitutional rights. You can sue them for damages. Uh, And one of the main, uh, you know, most of us don't interact with the feds on a daily basis, but um, some people who do are federal prisoners. Um, their guards are all federal employees. Um and if a federal prison guard um violates the cruel and unusual punishments clause, um they are subject to a lawsuit on the authority of Bivens. Um in recent years, the Supreme Court has really cut back on Bivens um in a series of cases uh involving uh sort of the first one was was a case called Ziegler against Abbasi and it involved um people who had been mistreated um, after 9-11. And then there was a case involving a border patrol agent. uh, And then most recently in June of this year, they uh, issued a new case saying that border patrol agents, maybe all the time, maybe just involved in border security uh, operations um, are not subject to lawsuit under Bivens. Um, And a lot of people have read this trio of cases from 2017 to 2022 to basically say that Bivens doesn't exist anymore, or very close to doesn't exist anymore. Um, and there's an open question whether Bivens still exists for federal prisoners. Um, and it's a, it's a really important question because, as I said, you know most of us don't come into contact with the feds on a daily basis, but these guys do. Um, they really need that protection, otherwise the Constitution is a dead letter for them. So my, uh, my client in this case, um, he was involved in an altercation, um, the um, federal marshals, sort of subdued him. Um, he stopped resisting, he gave up, he started complying with orders. They said, put your hands behind your back. He put his hands behind his back and then one of them straightened out his arm and broke it. Um, and that is uh, that is unconstitutional. That is pretty clearly unconstitutional. Um, and so the only question is whether he has a right to sue for that constitutional violation. Um, and the federal government or, well, these prison guards uh, attorneys are saying no. Uh, and, um you know we we think we think that he does. We think that the Supreme Court has never said that Bivens no longer applies to federal prison guards, and as long as it hasn't said that, um lower court should act as if uh, it still does um because that is the uh that is the law until the Supreme Court changes it. um, so that's that lawsuit that I'm working on
0: so this is your case, Edwards v. Gizzi. Could you give us some insight on how you navigate that relationship with Gizzy and trying to stay motivated in a case where you really can't predict what the outcome will be?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's um, you know, it's 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 tough taking one of these cases because uh, I usually I, I pretty much only do appeals, and so uh, a lot of the time uh, when I take a case, it's been litigated pro se by the by the plaintiff below, which is to say that they didn't have a lawyer, especially if they're um, in prison uh and so you know i i call this guy uh and have to say listen i want to take your case on appeal i'm going to be honest with you um it's not a slam dunk um you know it's 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 a rough intro to be like hey i want to take this ho- case but it's it's going to be really hard um uh, it's not exactly what you want to hear when when like a lawyer contacts you to say that um they want to uh, they want to represent you um but uh at the same time um you know people people in uh people in Edwards shoes uh they're kind of used to the house winning you know um uh and you know certainly their experience in the courts has been that the house always wins uh and so um you know he took it he took it about as well as you can expect um and the the conversations that we've had have been you know very candid i don't um i don't i don't i don't um mince my words when i tell him that you know this is a brief we filed. I think is a really good brief. I'm proud of it. I think, you know, if 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 your right to sue would be recognized, it like this is the brief that would do it. Um, but at the same time, it's gonna be dependent on the panel that we get. You know, if we get three Trump judges, um your odds go down quite a lot. And he laughed very hard when I said that, because I think that's probably more candid than most people would be. Um but uh, yeah, you know it's it's a it's a tough set of conversations to have about the fact that sometimes the federal court doors are just going to be closed. Um, but but my mission is to try to keep them open as much uh, as possible. Uh, and he knows that, and I think he's on board with it.
0: What are your thoughts on the Supreme Court decision that was released this summer on Egbert v. Boulay? How do you think that will affect Bivens in general, and how do you think that's going to affect the cases that you're working on? And one more question to add on, since many people feel as though Bivens in reality is overturned, what do you think the next steps would be to hold federal officers accountable?
1: Yeah. So um, I'll answer those questions in order. So the way I read Egbert is I read it a lot more modestly than I think a lot of people do. Um, You know, the Supreme court has had opportunity after opportunity to say Bivens is gone. Bivens is overruled Um, in Egbert itself. Uh, Lisa Blatt, who represented um, uh, the the agent, um, asked the court to, you know, when you uh, ask the court to take a case, the Supreme Court to take a case, you offer questions presented, um, questions that the Supreme Court can answer. Um, and she offered three questions. And the third question was whether the court should overrule Bivens entirely. Um, and the Supreme Court, usually when it takes a case, it takes, you know, it grants certiorari on whatever questions the parties say are presented. Um, but in this case, it specifically said granting certiorari on the first two questions only. So it it, it it expressly excluded the question about whether to overrule Bivens entirely. And what that tells me is there aren't four votes um, for overruling Bivens. There aren't five votes. There aren't even four, because there weren't four justices that would say, let's grant certiorari on that question too. And if there aren't four votes for that, what is left of Bivens? Well, and you know, I make this point in my brief. When the Supreme Court takes Bivens cases, it doesn't take these run of the mill cases where, like, an FBI agent or a DEA agent beats someone up in the process of a drug bust, um, or, uh, you know, uh, uh or, uh, uh, in this case, uh, uh, you know, a federal, uh, prison or court official, um, you know, uses excessive force on someone. Um, it takes these kind of, kind of borderline cases, uh, still, still in a lot of ways, these, um, edge cases, like, you know the one where uh, people who were rounded up, you know Muslims who were rounded up after 9/11, complaining about the conditions of their confinement, um, and they try to sue the Attorney General and the Director of the FBI, uh, and I think the Commissioner of the INS. Uh, which you know to be to be to be uh, clear, like at the time under governing law, they were perfectly entitled to do. Um, but that is a little bit outside of the core of suing the guy that did the bad thing to you directly. Um, And so, you know, the Supreme Court takes to that and says, you can't, you know, you can't try to change the executive branch's policy using Bivens. Okay, fine. Um, But you can still sue, and they're very clear about this, you can still sue individual officers that, um, you know, violate your constitutional rights directly. Okay. Then in Hernandez against Mesa, that's the second case of the the trilogy, uh, it's uh, a border patrol agent who shoots uh, a Mexican boy across the border. Um so this is this is this isn't just like a domestic excessive force case. This is an international incident. Like the government of Mexico is involved, they're filing amicus briefs, um, they're hopping mad, and the executive branch says, you know, we're not gonna do anything about it. And courts are very reluctant to um meddle in foreign affairs, um, you know, both within and outside the context of Evans. And so the court says we're not gonna recognize a Bivens claim here. Once again, that's you know, definitely groundbreaking new law, um, but in a lot of ways it's not the mine run of Bivens claim that comes up. Uh, and then finally, Egbert versus Boulet. Again, you know, this is a border patrol agent engaged in border security operations. Uh, the incident in question occurred like 10 feet from the border, uh, the U.S.-Canada border. Uh, and so the Supreme Court says no dice there as well. So all of these are, um, they're outside of the core, like domestic context, uh, law enforcement type of case or, or prison um, guard type of case that makes up the bulk of Bivens claims. Um, And each time the Supreme Court has had the opportunity to say Bivens is overruled entirely. In fact, in Egbert, not only did um, the petitioner ask the court to do so, Justice Gorsuch penned a concurrence saying the court really should have done so. Um, But the court didn't do so. Uh, And that means something. The fact that the court repeatedly has this opportunity and declines to take it means something. Um, And what does it mean? Well, like I said, most of the the mind run of cases don't come to the Supreme Court. They just percolate into lower courts uh, and what it means is that those cases, the core of Bivens, um, are is alive and well, um, and lower courts would 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 do well to heed that from the Supreme Court. You know, these are, um, it's it's um, just because the Supreme Court has not recognized a Bivens claim in a while in these edge cases that, that it takes doesn't mean that all Bivens claims are gone. If it meant that, it would say that. It hasn't said that. It's pointedly not said that. And so, as I read the case. Um, it says don't be adventurous in your bivens claims, um, but you can continue to bring these standard issue uh, claims about excessive force and so on in the domestic context. As far as the future of accountability for federal officials, you know, there's a five-word fix to Section 1983 that would bring federal officials within its ambit. All you've got to do is is delete like a, a conjunction or an or somewhere and add and federal agents or and. Uh, or, or under co- color of federal law as well as state law. That's what it is. Um, it's a five-word fix, um, and Congress has not come close to thinking about doing it. So, the, I mean, the future of, of accountability for federal agents is is political. It, it means it it requires people to call call their Congress people and build up a movement to to um, to make it uh, so that under positive statutory law you can sue federal agents for violating your constitutional rights.
0: So as you were mentioning, there are places where you can file lawsuits against federal officers dependent on where you live. But also, I know that in certain circuits like the 5th circuit because the circuit courts are applying the Bivens test so strictly, it becomes nearly impossible to be able to proceed with a with the filing. So what would you recommend for people in those areas to do to be able to hold officers accountable?
1: In the Fifth Circuit, you are pretty much out of luck, unfortunately, Um, you know, unless, you know, President uh, Ocasio-Cortez stuffs the Fifth Circuit with another 20 justices or something. Um, Until that happens, you know, the Fifth Circuit is one of the most conservative, if not the most conservative um, circuit courts in the country. It is full of judges appointed by Donald Trump um, and, and um, other Republicans, um, and, and their jurisprudence is, uh, and ju- just, just to give a little background here, the, the Bivens test for whether there's a Bivens claim is, one, is it a new context? And two, if it's a new context, are there special factors that um, counsel against hearing a Bivens claim? Um, the Fifth circus jurisprudence is, if there's a new context, um, you should never hear a Bivens claim. That is not the Supreme Court's test. Supreme Court's test is if there's a new context, you've got to analyze special factors. The Fifth Circuit's test is if there's a new context, you're out. Um, So they they apply a much stricter version of the test than than the Supreme Court has said they should. Um, And that means that, and, and pretty much anything makes for a new context. Like if your name isn't literally Webster Bivens, um, the Fifth Circuit will say that your case arises in a new context. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't have much advice for people who's uh, um, who, who have had their rights violated by federal officials in Texas. Get out of Texas. That's my advice.
0: Understandable. So besides Vivint's claims and federal officer accountability, what do you think the other top accountability issues are that people are currently facing?
1: Yeah. So qualified immunity is a big one. Um, just to, I'm sure you're your uh, listeners have probably heard it before. So, very briefly, qualified immunity uh, is the doctrine that if a uh, if a if a government employee violates your constitutional rights, but that constitutional right wasn't quote clearly established, um, then the official is immune from liability. Um, it's uh, it, you know in some ways it turns the ancient doctrine that ignorance of the law is no excuse on its head for people who enforce the law. Ignorance of the law very much is an excuse. Um, there are some some really sort of less, uh, uh, less well-known side effects of the doctrine. Like courts can say that your constitutional right wasn't clearly established without even saying that you had a constitutional right that was violated. Um, and so what that means is that even in that case, the right doesn't become clearly established. And so the development of constitutional law is stunted. In case after case, if courts just say, we don't know if you even have a constitutional right here, but even if you do, it's not clearly established. Then that right never gets established in that context, and so officers just get qualified immunity in case after case. Um, qualified immunity is one. There's another one called the Monell doctrine. This one has not made it to TikTok, as far as I'm aware. Um, but you know, it's basically it's a it's a strict um, liability limiting rule for uh, municipalities. Um, so you know, if uh, if the if a FedEx driver runs you over, you don't sue um, you don't sue the driver right? The driver probably doesn't have very deep pockets. You sue FedEx. Um, and you say, look, like this driver was doing something you know, for you. He, he was doing work within the course and scope of his employment. Um, and therefore, you as his employer, the beneficiary of what he was doing, you are liable for what he did pay up. Um, but if a cop runs you over or beats you up or anything, um, you don't just get to sue the city. You have to sue the cop individually. Um, now, most of the time, the city will defend the cop, and the city will pay up if the cop um, is found liable. Um, but it's not a guarantee. Uh, and more to the point, um, this is how qualified immunity comes about. Because if you sue the cop directly, then you know it's much more sympathetic, for course, to say, look, uh, it's kind of crazy if these cops, you know, individually could be held liable um, for violating a constitutional rule they didn't even know about. Um, Cities are much less sympathetic. You know, if you sue the city and the city, is, the city is found liable for something that the cop did, um, you're much less likely to see courts uh, come up with these rules like qualified immunity. Um, but instead, you can't just sue the cop directly. Uh, or sorry, you can't just sue the city directly. What you have to do is uh, you have to show that the city's uh, policy, custom, or practice uh, led the cop to do the bad thing that he did. You've got to basically show, you know, if, 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 if the city employee runs you over, you've got to show that the city trained employees to run people over. Right? I'm, I'm exaggerating very slightly, but that's basically the standard. Um, and it's a, it's a much harder standard to meet. Uh, and it's not one that private employers uh, have to, you know, it's, it's not the kind of protection that pl- private employers get. It's a special protection just for um, municipalities and other government employees, employers. Um, I don't think that should exist either. Um, there are a bunch of other doctrines like this. There's, uh, standing is one that got a little airtime after January 6th, uh, because a lot of the Trump, uh, election lawsuits were kicked out on standing. Um, that was, uh, was a weird time for me. Cause I definitely thought those lawsuits should have been kicked out, but, um, the doctrine of standing is usually used to kick out meritorious civil rights claims. Um, there's, um. Uh, There are various absolute immunities, so if you're a prosecutor, you are absolutely immune, not qualifiedly immune, but you are absolutely immune uh, from lawsuit uh, for anything you do in your prosecutorial duties. Um, Same thing for a judge. Um, There's state sovereign immunity, uh, which is is similar. If you're a state entity, you're immune from lawsuits or from damages lawsuits, period. Period. Um, there's there's a lot of these ways that courts um, ensure that the House always wins. Um, and, you know, in in particular cases, they all come into play. They're all, I mean, some of these, I'd say they're all equally important.
0: One question that I like to ask to wrap up these conversations is what would you recommend for the average person to do to get involved in holding government officers accountable, whether that's under Bivens, um, trying to reform And eliminate qualified immunity, or with the Manel claims.
1: Yeah, so you know, before I think we got on the call, you mentioned your um, your old employer, Institute for Justice. Um, They have a tracker uh, for uh, state level bills to uh, get rid of qualified immunity at the at the state level. Um, I think that's definitely something that um, you know, if if you care about that stuff, go see you know where your state is now. If there's anything coming up in the legislature um, trying to, to fix the problem. Um, in 2020 and 2021, two states, Colorado and, um, New Mexico, I think, uh, passed really strong bills, um, making it harder for officers to claim qualified immunity. Um, a number of other states did things that were along the same lines, but much less robust. Um, it is, you know, qualified immunity is something that, um, States can states can make it hard to impossible for officers to assert, and a couple of states have, and that's something that um, seems to be within the political Overton window. So um, if that's something people care about, they should be trying to get their state to do that. Um, other than that, you know, Public Accountability has a newsletter. Um, you can sign up for it. Um, we'll tell you all the bad stuff that's going on and get you fired up to go and talk to your neighbors and talk to your friends and tell them that, um, you know, they should be working to, to end this stuff, um, I think, you know.
0: Well, I'm definitely looking forward to the emails from y'all at Public Accountability. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. This has been super insightful and I'm excited to get to follow the cases that you fight on.
1: Thanks for having me on.